Welcome to the Making of the Islamic World. I'm Chris Grayton. If you're hearing this through the Ottoman History Podcast website, the Making of the Islamic World is a series of podcasts intended for the university classroom. On the website, we've got a bibliography of readings associated with this episode, as well as other readings and activities great for classroom discussion or for simply exploring on your own. In the previous installment, we discussed the history of the first imperial caliphates in Islam, the Umayyads and the Abbasids, and we explored the culture and institutions of the Abbasid world in the 9th century. In this episode, we're picking up the story with Abbasid fragmentation in the eastern provinces of the empire, where over the course of the 9th and 10th century, former clients of the Abbasids formed their own independent dynasties and states. In this episode, we'll talk about how, with the rise of those states, a long-standing Persian tradition of statecraft and scholarship fused with Islam, and how despite the fragmentation of the Islamic world, Islamic scholarship flourished between the 9th and 13th centuries. Alongside the rise of Persian language and culture, we'll discuss the spread of Sufism, which on one hand provided a different way of being Muslim, and on the other hand built networks of practitioners that easily crossed shifting political boundaries. And the third major development we'll discuss is the rise of Turkic dynasties, which rather than displacing the Persianate imperial tradition, furthered its spread. We'll conclude by discussing the life of poet and Sufi master Jalaluddin Arumi and the legacy of the Turco-Persian culture of the Islamic world that flourished in the space between the Balkans and Bengal. Umayyad and Abbasid caliphates built ambitious and expansive empires. But centralizing power was an immense challenge. Here's UVA professor Joshua White. From the moment of the Abbasid revolution, uh, the process of spinning off distant uh, provinces begins. Right, Iberia is lost almost immediately. And at this point, right, 750, it's only been part of the game for a few decades. So even as we keep speaking of an expanding empire, it is in fact beginning to become more and more decentralized. And this is the moment where we think of Abbasid power as being at its height. So the first province to be spun off as a hereditary governorship is done so intentionally in North Africa with Aghalibids. So this is where we begin having all these ids, this parade of dynasties that we all designate with the suffix id. And we'll meet a bunch of them, the Olivids, sure, the Tahirids, the Samanids, the Safarids, the Seljukids, the Idrisids. I could go on and on and on. And some of them are more worth our remembering than others. Each of the names Josh White just rattled off comprised generations of rulers that at their respective heights presided over territories the size of large nation states. But the point is that after the ninth century, it's not really possible to talk about the Islamic world as a cohesive political entity in any meaningful sense. In the eastern half of the Islamic world, the Abbasids remained the only dynasty able to lay claim to the caliphate, but that translated into little political authority in the borderlands. Again, at this moment where things are, are working reasonably well for the Abbasids, um, where power and wealth are concentrated in Baghdad, the tendency towards families to, to amass wealth and power continues and for them to always want to pass on and on to their sons. So 
the next one of these kind of major provincial governorships to become hereditary takes place in the kind of Abbasid origin zone of Khorasan and beyond. The family known as the Tahirids become hereditary governors over Khorasan and the lands beyond that, as well as occupying major positions within the central government as grand viziers, as basically kind of mayors of Baghdad and police chiefs. They have a whole bunch of power. Even for the Tahirids, though, they find that governing Khorasan and, and Transoxania is rather difficult. They themselves appoint sub-governors who become hereditary to their east. This is where we get the Samanids. This also opens the door then to challengers locally against those guys, too. This is where we can kind of bring in an interesting story, uh, and that is of the Safarids. All the Ids we've mentioned so far, the Tahirids, the Alabids, the Umayyads, the Abbasids, of course, are families. A Safar is not a family. He's a coppersmith. It gets, they get this name from this guy, Yaqub ibn Alayth, a Safar, who is a coppersmith in, in Iran, uh, a guy who, at least the sources tell us, was rather uncouth, was in the habit of eating raw onions, which made him perhaps not too pleasurable to spend time around, and who basically became a local gang leader, uh, running a band of toughs, beating up folks, and ultimately amasses power this way. And while the, the uh, Abbasids and the Tahirids are too busy doing their own thing, this guy ultimately builds a small kingdom, eventually overthrows the Tahirids in their entirety, and takes control of their territory, and marches on Baghdad himself. But it's kind of interesting to consider for a moment what these guys were actually seeking and what they received from the Abbasids. Nobody here at this point is trying to become caliph. Nobody's claiming to be caliph. These guys want to become legitimate governors. They all are going by the title of emir, and they're ultimately looking to be invested with legitimacy by the caliph. The caliph becomes, in this period, still the source of legitimacy. You can really speak, as Hugh Kennedy does, of, a, of an Islamic commonwealth all under the authority of the caliph, even as these folks govern otherwise in their own names, still reciting the, the caliphs during the Friday sermons, make all their own decisions, and are willing to actually make war on the caliph in order to get his recognition of their position and their con his, his confirmation as legitimate governors. So Baghdad and the caliph still occupy a really important position within the kind of political and religious universe here, but these folks are doing their own thing. Historians often refer to this period of the 9th and 10th centuries as the Iranian Intermezzo, wherein a number of dynasties jockeyed for power in territories that had long been part of the Sasanian Empire before the conquests of the 7th century. The intervening centuries had brought a new religion, a new dominant language, Arabic, and incorporated Sasanian state structures into an Abbasid order. In some cases, families that held local power under the Sasanians became incorporated into the Abbasid state, only to claim greater independence once again, this time as Muslim dynasties. And most of the population had continued to speak a wide variety of Indo-Iranian languages, and languages other than Arabic, which shared a written lingua franca of Persian. Yeah, well, I mean, it's important to recognize, them first and foremost, that Persian never died out. It remained the spoken language for vast territories within the Abbasid Caliphate. In much of the former Sasanian lands, the former low-level nobility, you could say, the landowners, remained in many instances in possession of their territories and in, in control is, is you know, for a time at least, right, Arabic becomes 
a key language of cultural production, though, again, by many people for whom it was not their first language in Abbasid territories. You know, Persian's never gone entirely. The rise of Islam and the Arabic language did not erase Persian. In fact, Persian language would grow in importance during the centuries that followed. Neelam Koja is a postdoctoral associate at Yale University. Her research focuses on the history of what today is Afghanistan, Pakistan, and North India. During the period we're covering in this episode, the 10th to 13th centuries, those areas became increasingly Islamicized, and a new form of Persian language written in the Arabic script became the dominant language of communication across different parts of the region. Persian was the language of administration, it was the language of literature, it was the language of art, so even in books of art or architecture, you would see Persian written and embedded as ornamentation throughout. So Persian was capacious in the sense of how it was being used. So not just in the media, but also in the ways and the genres in which it was being used. You had Arabic as the language of early Islam. So people wrote, you know, qasidas and all of this in Arabic. And soon you started to see in Persian um, people taking up the cause of Islam through the language of Persian as well. Persian, again, was a shared language. One of our great historians of Islamic studies, Shahab Ahmad, has said it is so large that we could call it the Balkan to Bengal complex. For well over six centuries, it was the language of administration, the language of literature, So I think one of the big questions that scholars think about is how tied is Islam to the language of Persian, right? So if you have people who are not Muslim, who are not devotees of Islam, but they use Persian, what does that then mean? So you have that on one hand, where you have a lot of people who have nothing to do with Islam, but just happen to work for a Muslim ruler speaking and working in Persian. So does that mean that Persian is a secular language? On the other hand, the spread of Persian language is founded in with the spread of Sufism. So as you have Sufis spreading across towards the east and you have more people becoming um, adherents to Sufi Islam or people, even Hindus who practice with Sufis, Muslim Sufis side by side, you start seeing Persian as the language of expression, the idioms and all of this. So you have another group of scholars who want to argue that actually they're they're tied together and we really can't separate the two. My own take on this is Persian is such a capacious language that it actually allows for all of it. And that's one of the things that I think is the beauty of Persian. You, If you go up north, like you go to Central Asia, that lands that now border places like Russia, or if you go west towards the Balkans, or if you go towards um, Ottoman Turkish lands, and when you go east towards like Bangladesh, Persian is being used in all of these spaces. And what allows for this is the grammar, I think. Arabic has a very strict grammar. They have very strict grammar rules. Persian, on the other hand, has a very loose grammar. So you can you can basically absorb a lot of the local language, words, dictions into Persian very easily without it losing any kind of comprehensiveness. Like you could still comprehend the language, but it's going to have all of these other idioms. It's going to have the diction of the local languages. The power of the conquest and and the influence of the conquerors 
is felt, you know, culturally at, at every level. Persian, as it in its kind of revived form from the 10th century onwards, now it's written in the Arabic script. Now it has a tremendous number of loan words, although words that often will mean something different in Persian usage than what their primary usage in Arabic may have been. And then that same process will play out once more um, with Turkish. Uh, you know, the, the Turkic languages themselves had in some areas been written in various forms, and that they too will then absorb a tremendous amount of Arabic loanwords through Persian. Uh, and so this process will continue to play out. And, and it's worth mentioning as well that many of our authors are fluent in Arabic as well. You know, Persian is the language that you want to use for poetry. Arabic might still be the language you use in the religious sciences, the, 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 the language you would still use for scientific production more broadly. So we have you know, Persianate thinkers um, active in the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, what have you, who might write certain works in Persian and other works in Arabic, depending on the nature of the work, uh, with the expectation that their audience could follow either, based on the circumstances, and each could develop specialized vocabularies that would suit their needs. One thing that we always need to remember is that these are multilingual societies. They're either bilingual or multilingual. So it didn't mean that Persian superseded and took over in terms of dialogue and language and written word and spoken word, but it supplemented and it had its own function. Through the Eastern realms of the Abbasid Empire, the rich Persian heritage came into the Islamic fold. At the same time, a distinctive tradition of mysticism emerged as a central aspect of religious practice and belonging for a growing number of Muslims in that space. Here's Aslahan Gurbizel, an assistant professor at McGill University in the Institute of Islamic Studies. Sufism is a movement within Islamic thought and piety that goes back to the 7th and 8th centuries, so that goes back to right after the time of the Prophet, and it starts off as a shared movement and sentiment to go beyond the external, the legal obligations of religion and to focus on spiritual and internal development. So one of the foundational binaries of Sufism is this tension between the external meaning of humans, world, versus the internal esoteric meaning uh, that is embedded in religion and in piety. And one of the goals of Sufis is to go beyond the formalities to find this inner spiritual meaning. Sufism is an umbrella term and as of the 7th and 8th century, we see the term Sufi being used for these movements of asceticism, of the denial of worldly pleasures and ambitions for the sake of spiritual development. And Sufi as a word comes from uh, the coarse clothing that the Sufis wore to signify that they didn't care about the wealth of the world and they renounce the, um, the richness and the, the, the wealth of the world for the sake of uh, inner development. So Sufi referred originally to this um, ascetic moments that found, uh, that expressed themselves as the continuation of the prophet's piety. Another word used for these early groups is Arif or Gnostic, which uh, referred to 
experiential knowledge of God, uh, which means that the direct access to the metaphysical realm, to the world of the unseen, in which the Sufi could experience direct encounters with the Prophet through the dreams or even with God through seeing God. Sufism included many different influences. For instance, we can talk about the influence of pre-Islamic Persian religions, as we see in the case of the Persianate world, Sufis like Sukhravardi. It includes influences from Neoplatonism, uh, where the world is seen as the manifestation of just one organizing principle, in which case it is God. And it includes philosophical orientations, as we see with the Neoplatonic philosophy inside uh, Sufi teachings, especially by the 12th and 13th centuries. Uh, so Sufism is actually um, a composite uh, set of beliefs and doctrines uh, that included many different orientations, but it was also integrated into the mainstream teaching of Islam, especially as of the 10th century, uh, which is when we see the first manuals, textbooks of how to be Sufi or Sufi ethics being written. And these early manuals actually try to reconciliate Sufism uh, with mainstream formal forms of Islamic knowledge, such as Quranic exegesis or um, such as theology. So it is not outside these mainstream forms of Islamic learning and by the 11th century, it's integrated into the main body of Islamic learning as a distinct science, Islamic science, known as Ilm al-Tasawwuf or the science of Sufism. Every religious tradition has different ways of thinking about what it means to be a practitioner of that faith. And almost every religious tradition has a mystical bent. Right in Islam, that mystical bent is called Sufism. They are people who take, who think about not just the exoteric, the what can be thought about on the outside in terms of like ritual practice and ritual observance, but also what is esoteric, what is not seen, what is unseen, what is felt, um, and what comes from within. Persian language and Sufism were two important components of what we're calling Rumi's world. The other component was the rise of Turkic dynasties within this new Persianate political and cultural space. In the previous episode, we briefly discussed how the Abbasid armies enslaved people from the east, often referred to in the sources as Turks, to serve as soldiers, and how some of these individuals rose to positions of tremendous power. The name Turk itself was not a name that the diverse communities of Central Asia often applied to themselves at that time. But many of these people spoke a language related to modern Turkish and hailed from regions far from the imperial cultures of historical Persia. Turkic military personnel would find opportunities in the weaknesses of the Persian dynasties of the Iranian intermezzo. All these powers still have the same problem, though, that the Abbasids did, which is... No matter how you rose to power, whether the caliph gave you the office and then you passed it on to your kids, or you seized it from outside, inevitably the question of how do you maintain your hold on power comes to be answered with slave soldiers, Turks. And the same problem that the Abbasids had will play out again and again. The Samanans will be overthrown by one of their own slave soldier commanders, 
and we meet another group of ids, in this case not named after a family, not named after a profession, but named after a city, Ghazna, uh, where they had their base. So we begin with a uh, Turkish slave soldier, good name, Sabuk Tikin. He will be replaced by somebody, not his relative, Alptakin, whose son, Mahmoud, will replace him. And so you notice here, too, a tendency of Islamization and ultimately Persianization on these frontiers where the first generation were taken from the steppes, still have their Turkish names, and within three generations, we have good Arabic names and ultimately a desire to establish your own legitimacy by patronizing a Persian court culture. He also, he and the people that came after him started establishing these important centers of learning and culture. And Persian was the language of choice. And so they started to um, attract more scholars. And they really, I think one, one of the nice things with the politics of this is that they would pay people to come and produce these greater pieces of work. One thing that he instituted was he started a court poet laureate so it was the Malik Ashura, and this person was um, appointed by the the Sultan, the king, and it became a position, a permanent position, that continued on historically from then. So this was a really important change institutionally. If you're looking for a new way to kind of strike out and 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 build a court, a court culture that will be distinguished against that, that it existed in, in, in Wadad, what better way to do it than with Persian um, for than our rulers who are themselves uh, alien, especially the Turks, Persian is going to be the language to do it in. There are certain political, um, uh, certain political events that happen that would in that would either incentivize people to come to places where they could get a, where they would have a livelihood, or that that where they would come as refugees, and then find employment. The Persianate world saw a great deal of turmoil between the 9th and 13th centuries, but political upheaval did not stem the development of scholarship. Rather, it seemed to facilitate the circulation of scholars within these shifting polities as the Islamic sciences diversified. One person who would chart an increasingly common scholarly path was Ibn Sina. Born near the Samanid dynasty's capital of Bukhara, he spent years moving from place to place following the Samanid's fall to the Ghaznavids. He spent much of his career in the Persian territories of the Buyid dynasty, and he died in Hamadan, controlled at the time by the Kakuyids, governors of the Buyids who carved out a large territory for themselves in modern-day Iran. Despite the political turmoil during his life, which ended roughly 2,000 kilometers from the place he was born, Ibn Sina was able to produce a vast body of scholarship that remained relevant both in the Islamic world and beyond for centuries to come. Here's Mariam Patton. Ibn Sina was a late 10th slash early 11th century polymath from what is today Uzbekistan. And according to his own writings, sort of on his life and his biography, he paints himself as this figure who, from a very young age, was quite learned and bookish and, and went off to study. He wrote logic, philosophy, mathematics, astronomy. In terms of his role in sort of Islamic intellectual history, he's one of these Neoplatonizing 
commentators of Aristotle. His most long-lasting influence and sort of widespread influence in terms of geography and sort of, you know, how far abroad he gets read is definitely in the field of medicine. And the field of medicine is an interesting case study for the sciences and what's considered science in particular because medicine wasn't something that fit into Aristotle's schema of of knowledge and sort of the, the nine main areas of knowledge or classification of the sciences. So, you know, you had things like logic, rhetoric, mathematics, politics, economics. These were like the big sciences, which were divided into theoretical and, phys- and and practical categories. But medicine wasn't one of these. And Ibn Sina, he wasn't the first to sort of emphasize the importance of medicine. Medicine was definitely one of the fields that was translated from Greek to Arabic, you know, a couple centuries before him. But what he did was in particular to add the Aristotelian logic to it and to make it fit into this broader scheme in a way that was legible and, you know, made sense to to the philosophers who were reading Aristotle and Plato. And now it made sense to also think of medicine in terms of the Aristotelian understanding of the cosmos, which is based off of this idea that everything on the sublunary plane, so Earth, is changeable and mutable. You have the four elements, Earth, water, air, and fire. And these interact on each other in sort of linear ways and have cause and effect. Ibn Sina took this and combined it basically with with Galenic medicine. Um, and so Galen, um, who's this other big figure, you know, we, we mentioned Aristotle and Plato, but Galen is the other fourth century Greek physician who, whose writings are widely influential. And it's those works that Ibn Sina takes and basically synthesizes into the canon or Alcanum. So the canon is a very interesting text with a lot of different parts. Its usefulness is in part because of how well it teaches and and explains Galenic medicine using this broader Aristotelian framework, which is the guiding sort of philosophy of how to understand the world. If the body is understood as the site of the interaction of the four humors, that's a way in which the human body kind of mimics the broader cosmos, you know, like it's a microcosmic, which is actually a platonic idea. So that that's sort of where I was getting at when I said Ibn Sina is one of these Neoplatonizing Aristotelians. You know, it's Aristotle plus Plato uh, into this very interesting mix. Basically, the body is understood as comprising four humors. So there's no microbiology, the the idea of like organisms or like cells, you know, that that's not there. But instead we have the body and organs, which are the site of the humors sort of interacting and, and flowing through the body. And the four humors are are blood and then different kinds of bile. So you have yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. When they're in balance, then you are healthy, is basically the, is the basic idea. And so if you're, if you're sick, if you're unwell, and you go see the physician, the doctor, he will diagnose you and say, okay, you are, you're melancholic, so that means you have too much of this humor or that humor. And treatment will involve him trying to figure out how to either decrease or increase whichever humor will bring you back into balance. That's the basic gist of, of Galenic or hum- humoral medicine, let's say, um, which basically dominated medical practice and theory until well into the 17th century. The Kanun is a, is a large work divided into a lot of different sections, and it's the first section 
that does most of the summarizing of Galen and and then part two of the of the canon goes into the Materia Medica. Materia Medica are basically kind of encyclopedias of all these different substances like plant, animal, mineral are the three different categories and for each substance which are typically like called simple substances because they're not mixed with other things there will be a discussion of you know what does it do what changes as a cause in the body some writers will say okay well this disease or this problem that you can observe in a patient can be treated with this drug or this plant and um, they're quite voluminous, you know, many hundreds of, of substances. Um, and so Ibn Sina is one of these, it helps to collate, basically, um, the Materia Medica. So that's another reason why the Kanun is such a important work, because it's sort of gathering everything there is to possibly know about medicine in one convenient book. On his own kind of merits, you know, Ibn Sina is important for his work on synthesizing and summarizing Galen and Aristotle. And that that's important in his own day. Like he's he's widely read in his own day, but his influence and and readership lasts well beyond that for and in different settings for a number of different reasons. You have the Latin Arabic translation movement, which starts in Andalusia, southern Spain, and southern Italy. And Part of the whole endeavor, the whole impetus behind these translations is to get at the original sources again, those of classical antiquity. It's worth remembering that knowledge of Greek was, was almost totally lost in Western Europe after basically the 5th century. Scholars are unable to read figures like Aristotle and Plato, though they know of them. Figures like Ibn Sina suddenly are seen as ways to get at the sources, but also as scholars to be read within their own right. And the Kanun in particular is a pretty original work. So starting in the 12th and 13th centuries, you would then have another wave of interest and, and readership into the Arab commentators, Ibn Sina being one of them. In the medieval context, in particular that of the universities, um, where medicine is one of the main subjects taught, you know, it's one of the three faculties, you have theology, law, and medicine. Ibn Sina is a major part of the curriculum. His lasting influence in the universities is, is very well documented, well, very well understood. But what's less understood, or at least less widely known, is that his influence continues well beyond what we traditionally consider the medieval period into early modern studies and, and the Renaissance in particular. He doesn't really leave the university medical curriculum until the 17th century. If you're following along in my class at UVA, we're reading a small selection translated from Ibn Sina's Canon of Medicine. We're also reading a small part of Ibn Sina's correspondence with another Persian polymath, Abu Rehan al-Biruni. Biruni was a remarkable person. He studied topics like physics, mathematics, and the natural sciences alongside Islamic jurisprudence and a whole bunch of languages. He was born in the Khorezm region of modern Uzbekistan, which at the time was controlled by a dynasty who traced their origins back to the Sasanian period. But he ended up in an entirely different place, settling in the court of the Ghaznavids. In fact, he even traveled with Mahmud of Ghazni on his military campaign to India, where Biruni spent years and wrote extensively about India's religion, geography, and societies. His writings on India, which we'll also be reading for class, are cited as an early example of anthropological writing.
Ibn Sina and Biruni's lifetimes overlapped with a politically tumultuous but intellectually dynamic period at the turn of the 11th century. Biruni died sometime after the year 1050, which means he lived just long enough to see the rise of an even more consequential dynasty in the Turco-Persianate mold, the Seljuks. Again, the Ghaznavids, right, uh, based on Ghazna and what is now Afghanistan, are one of these uh, polities that form on the ashes of their former masters. Right? They overthrow the Samanids and ultimately come to occupy a vast space. And my teacher used to joke that you could think of the Ghaznavids as being an army with a state attached to it. You might think of that as like some of uh, the football teams in the South that have universities attached to them. That was what they did. That's what all the resource extraction was for, was to build this massive army and then to deploy it, which uh, Mahmoud al-Ghazna famously did. He, you know, he may have had plenty of time and money to spend on commissioning things like the Shahnameh, but most, most of his efforts otherwise were, were spent sacking various cities in northern India. But here's somebody who is you know, descended from um, the steppes, but is himself not a product of it, a product of, of the palace and... and um, you know, educated in this kind of Perso-Islamic tradition. There's a nice contrast then between him and the nomadic power that will ultimately overthrow the Ghaznavids, which is the Seljukids. In this case, again, people descended from some ancestor who lived somewhere at some point named Seljuk. You know, these guys are out somewhere near the RLC, are themselves driven as nomads are by other nomadic attacks, find their way into service as mercenaries, end up clashing with the Ghaznavids and are driven into Iran where they find out actually that they're really kind of in a position to take over large swaths of territory, which they do. By 1040, they're in a position to defeat uh, Ghaznavids, or their former enemies. And by 1055, the Seljukids have driven uh, all the way into Baghdad and taken control and adopt a new title which we haven't encountered before, Sultan. Right, somebody who just exercises power. We haven't encountered that one before. We've moved beyond Amir. The, the, the Seljuks ultimately exercise power over such a vast swath of territory that they can kind of assert this new role. The thing is, is they are not a product of the slave-soldier system. They are not products of the barracks. They came with their families and their herds intact, maintaining traditional nomadic styles of life. They were already Muslim. They did not have to be converted. They had converted at some point, it seems, probably in the later 10th century. Nevertheless, they too very rapidly, at least in their kind of most elite groups, adopt a Perso-Islamic culture, and we will see the same sort of process take place amongst those who become the great Seljuk sultans, where we'll get Turkish name, Turkish name, Turkish name, Arabic name. The Seljuks conquered Baghdad from the Buyids. The Buyid emirs commanded a vast empire, but had kept the Abbasid Caliph in place, albeit with no practical political power. The Buyids themselves were a Shia dynasty, but not claiming descent from Ali themselves. These conditions made it attractive for the Seljuks to assert a Sunni Muslim identity as rulers. When the Seljuks ruled, rolled into Iraq and into Iran, they were conquering it from a Shia dynasty that had effectively killed the Abbasid Caliph captive in Baghdad for some number of decades, never overthrowing him, but not exactly giving him the happiest of times either. Now, the, the later Abbasid Caliphs will not find life under the Seljuks to be all that much more fun, but nevertheless, 
the Seljuks, at least at their highest echelons of leadership, realize that there there is something to be made in in claiming to to fight on behalf of kind of Sunni Islam against uh, the Shi pretenders who had ruled in Iraq and rule at this point in Syria and in Egypt. Now we're going to turn to the life of a Khorasani scholar known as El Ghazali, who enjoyed the patronage of the Seljuk state at its height. Uh, he received uh, his early education in Tours and then in Nishapur. He received his advanced education and under the Seljuks, Nishapur was one of the main learning centers of the Islamic world. Al-Ghazali had the support of a very interesting historical figure, Nizam al-Mulk. Like Al-Ghazali, Nizam al-Mulk was born near the city of Tous in Khorasan. His father belonged to a class of landowners who had maintained their political power after the Islamic conquests. Nizam al-Mulk and his father actually spent a few years at the Ghaznavid court before entering the service of the Seljuks. After the assassination of the renowned Seljuk conqueror Alp Arslan, Nizam al-Mulk effectively ran the Seljuk Empire for about two decades before he too was eventually assassinated. Nizam al-Mulk established a network of schools or madrasas known by his name, the Nizamiyeh, and they gave scholars like Al-Ghazali the opportunity to thrive. The first two Nizamiye madrasas were in Baghdad and Nishapur. Uh, subsequently, more Nizamiye madrasas were endowed in Herat, Balh, and Isfahan. Nizamiye madrasas were not the first madrasas in the Islamic world. The transition from uh, informal learning in mosque circles towards more institutional madrasas had already been underway. But Nizam al-Mulk's madrasas are distinguished uh, by a new prosperity and by a new degree of institutionalization. It was considered in this period to be part of Seljuk legitimacy to be endowing learning centers, particularly in the form of madrasas, uh, throughout the Islamic realm. They were centers of teaching, which also allocated funding for the lodging uh, of the teachers and students. So they were full campuses, living complexes, in addition to the main goal of a madrasa, which was legal learning. These institutions were centers for sciences such as astronomy or medicine. Uh, Madrasas were centers uh, of medical learning, hospitals, uh, and healing, as well as legal learning. Uh, when Ghazali was invited to the court of Malik Shah in 1085, he first occupied himself with writing on politics. So this was a shared occupation between Al-Ghazali and his patron Nizam al-Mulk, who also wrote a book on politics called Siyasit Nami, the book of politics. And the main political question that occupied the thinkers of this period was how to understand the relationship between the caliphate as a historical institution and as an institution that continued to uh, have influence in the Islamic world and the newly emerging Turco-Persian dynasties, which did not have the Islamic legitimacy of the caliphate, 
but which had an exercised de facto military and political power. So how to uh, reconciliate or conciliate these two forms of power was uh, one of the main questions of Seljuk political thought that both Nizam al-Mulk as a vizier and Ghazali as a scholar wrote extensively on. The idea that both of these writers and many other Seljuk authors defended was that there were two forms of power, uh, one of which is caliphate. It is based on descent from the family of the prophets, so the Abbasid caliphs would be from the family of Abbas, who was the uncle of prophets, so there is a visceral connection to the age of the prophets through the caliph. Whereas the other form of power was sultanate, uh, which referred to power, qua power, a sheer military and political force. And what Ghazali argued was that this power, sultanate, political power, was as important as uh, the caliphate, which was the religious form of power, because only in well-maintained, well-ordered society one could expect Islam to be practiced properly and to flourish properly. And of course, the Seljuks were not the first people who thought about this question of caliphate versus sultanate. But what's new with Ghazali is that unlike some earlier thinkers, he doesn't think that political power is a is subject to caliphate and is inferior to the caliphal power. He thinks that they are equal and they are equally important in the maintenance of order in the Islamic world. Al-Ghazali's argument made sense in an empire being de facto governed by the vizier of a Seljuk sultan who ruled nominally in the name of the Abbasid caliph. But his emphasis on order was also reflective of the chaotic times in which he was writing. Ghazali's world is one of disorder in which he sees the assassination of many prominent public figures, including the vizier Nizam, uh, Nizam al-Mulk. It is a world of disorder in the sense that the Seljuk dynasty starts to fragment into other dynasties, such as the Iran Seljuks, the Rum Seljuks, the Syrian Seljuks, and the eastern end of the empire frequently starts to change hand and the the boundaries of the Seljuk land are constantly threatened by rivaling Turco-Persian sultanates. So this brings us to the second focus of Ghazali's political thought, which is that the maintenance of order is an important goal of Islamic rulership. If the overthrowing of an unjust ruler is going to cause disorder in the world, one should better refrain from this. One should rather put up with an unjust, impious sultan than to see disorder. In his work on the Sultanate, El Ghazali sounds like an extremely pro-establishment figure. Yet in the midst of the Seljuk Empire's internal turmoil, a crisis of conscience led al-Ghazali to turn inward towards the practice of Sufism. Ghazali goes into a personal crisis, uh, which we know about because he wrote one of the most interesting works of this period, which is an autobiography, but a, a spiritual and intellectual autobiography 
called Deliverance from Error, in which he talks about uh, what led him to quitting this highest prestigious job in the Nizamiye Medrese and to becoming essentially an itinerant Sufi for the next uh, five years. So according to what he says in the Deliverance from Error, uh, he writes that more than 300 people attended every single lecture of his, which is a huge number, and it shows his popularity. And he writes that this led him to question the reason why uh, he was actually teaching at a, at a madrasa. Was he teaching it because it's so prestigious, it brings him money, it brings him the courtship of the rulers and popularity, or was he teaching it for the sake of uh, learning and spiritual development, which is the only acceptable reason for one uh, to pursue studies. Uh, so here we see that foundational binary of Sufism between the external and internal motivations. And he, according to his own statements, he starts to question his sincerity. Historians think that this wasn't the only reason that why he left uh, his teaching position and wrote this work. But uh, in his deliverance from error in his intellectual autobiography, he writes that there are forms of knowing God specifically, which are philosophy, theology, Sufism and Ismailism. And he rejects all three, all three of these apart from Sufism, which is the only valid form of knowledge. Um, but this should be taking, taken as a rhetorical rejection um, because one of the achievements of Ghazali's overall work uh, was to integrate uh, philosophy and theology with Sufism and to theorize a new form of Sufism which was different from traditionalist Sufism, which was based mostly on the collection of sayings of the prophets. This order led al-Ghazali to Sufism, which provided order in another sense. The first Sufis were individuals or small groups that were disparate, uh, but as of the 12th century, Sufism is organized as neat hierarchical societies with firm rules and firm boundaries. So the formation of Sufi communities is a feature of um, the 12th century, and it continues from there. The Sufi communities are organized around a silsile, which means a genealogy. This is a chain of transmission of inner knowledge from person to person. So it's not a study chain. It doesn't show that you studied theology or Quran or whatever, but it shows that you had a living relationship with a living master. And these chains went back all the way to the time of the Prophet once again, showing that uh, the Sufi claim that Sufism was rooted in the practices of the Prophet. In addition to these genealogies, uh, Sufi orders had distinct methods. So every Sufi order had a distinct method of remembrance of God, zikr, or had a distinct theory of halwa, which was seclusion, but how long will you go into seclusion? What are the rules? What are the boundaries? And we should also talk about belonging in a Sufi community 
which wasn't necessarily a full-time job. So there were gradations of belonging into a Sufi community. At the core was the Sufi order, Sufi master and his household. So the family was a big part of this household, but the students could also become part of this household, particularly by marrying into uh, the family, by marrying into a freed slave of the family or a daughter of the family. So at the core of this was the master and his household. Around that core, we have students or disciples who attend the lodges for learning. And lodges were important centers of Islamic learning where one could learn not only uh, the Quran and the prophets saying, but also Persian literature and Persian literature. Another grade of belonging was lodges and their students, which was again a full-time commitment. But one could also belong to a Sufi community by simply going there for the ceremonies once or twice a week. Um, These ceremonies included sermons, uh, but also included chanting, singing, which required very little literacy and which were ceremonies that anybody could attend. So in this level, we have soldiers, artisans who would go to the lodge once or twice and who would consider themselves as part of that community. Another gradation is just a very popular level of people going to Sufi lodges just to visit graves for saint visitation, which again requires no literacy, but it does tie one to this Sufi community. This is what I mean by saying Sufi orders were an important element of the social fabric of the Islamic world, particularly from the 10th and 13th century and onwards, when there was very little centralized authority. Uh, Sufi orders rise as places of social solidarity and social belonging in addition to intellectual and ethical and spiritual training. By the end of the 11th century, the Seljuk imperial structure was faltering in its eastern heartlands. But in the west, the frontier of the Byzantine realms became the site of new dynastic consolidation and settlement. We have to consider first that the Seljuks, when they roll into Iraq and then into Syria, are still primarily nomadic, right? The vast majority of these people are coming in again with their flocks and with their families. If you are a nomad from the steppes of Central Asia and you end up in Syria in the summer, you're not going to be a particularly happy person. What exactly are your horses and your sheep going to eat? There's not nearly enough grass for you. And so it turns out then that the Christian kingdoms of the Caucasus and the Byzantine Empire in Anatolia are a really useful pressure relief valve because there you encounter nice steppe lands, beautiful grass, and lots of people who, being that they're independent Christian kingdoms, you can raid and enslave legally. And so beginning in the 1040s, increasing in the 1050s and 1060s, you have waves of raids by nomads who are not really being directed by the Seljuk leadership, but are just kind of pouring in. Uh, nevertheless, for the, for the Seljuk leadership, we know that their main goal was to ultimately take on the Fatimid caliphs um, and to conquer the lands in Syria and Egypt. And they ultimately succeed in Syria, Egypt, not so much. But that they continue to try to avoid actually war directly with the Byzantines. And this is how we end up with what ends up becoming an incredibly important and, and famous uh, encounter at Manzikert in 1071. So Manzikert's near Lake Van in the far east of what is now Turkey. 
the Seljuk Sultan uh, Alp Arslan had made peace with the Byzantines, or so he thought he had, but it turned out that the Byzantine emperor had uh, double-crossed him, that it was his intention to march with his army to confront the Turks and hopefully drive them from the region entirely, because at this moment, you know, much of Anatolia is farm farmland, and while they had begun to restructure uh, their land tenure system to turn the farms into sort of militarized peasant holdings, uh, this was a process that took some amount of time. Uh, the long story short here, then, is that this battle does not go well. Uh, the Turks realize what's going on, have useful nomadic battle techniques that are uh, unfamiliar to the Byzantines. Um, the feigned retreat followed by recircling and dropping tons of arrows on their enemies does not work out for the Byzantines, and ultimately their emperor is captured. Now, the result of this effectively... And not just because of the, the, the sting of the defeat itself, but because of the political wrangling that takes place in Constantinople while their emperor is held captive, effectively opens the door to, to the Seljuks. And more precisely to Turkic nomads more broadly who flood into Anatolia in, in the years that follow. There is not, in fact, much in the way of a government, Seljuk or otherwise, in Anatolia for much of the succeeding, succeeding decades. In time, in fact, the Byzantines begin to support something forming like a government with a Seljuk prince at its head in Anatolia, if only so that they have somebody to talk to. The actual kind of first Seljuk sultan of Rum is a guy who actually sets him in Nicaea in 1081 and holds that space until the Crusaders show up and push them out in the, you know, the final years of the 11th century. They ultimately regroup in Konya. And really, the kind of apogee of, of, of Seljuk power comes later um, in Anatolia, completely separate. So the same moment that the great Seljuk Sultanate, which, at least technically speaking, rules over everything from Central Asia to Syria, begins to fall apart. Anatolia ends up being actually pretty well insulated against all this because nobody really cares. It's its own thing. It's absolutely the Wild West. But by the middle of the 12th century, is, is the Seljuks control the, 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 almost the entirety of the, the Anatolian plateau from their base at Konya. And while they too will have the same issues, the Byzantines have their own issues going on. Another attempt is, meant to drive, is made to drive the, uh, the Turks from Anatolia towards the end of the 12th century. And uh, that doesn't go much better than Manzikert, after which point... Pretty much the entirety of the interior is controlled by the Seljuks. But this is where it's important to note, I think, a couple of things. One is that the Seljuks, um, especially kind of the apogee of their power in, in Anatolia, create a network for trade that the Byzantines had either never had or allowed to lapse entirely. They built this net the network of caravanserais, which transformed the landscape. And if you were to you know, get in a car and drive across, across the steppe today, you will still see, with the frequency of the Motel 6s you encounter on an American highway, the ruins of these caravanserais, some of which are actually in quite good shape. So that there was a place for, for merchants and traders coming uh, you know, all the way on networks that, was, uh, that extended to China to stay regularly in safety uh, with their goods and their animals. These trade networks remained open, that even as decentralization and disunity is kind of the name of the game and what we're talking about here is that we're not talking about closed borders, that merchants 
and intellectual scholars are all able to travel quite freely and do. And that whenever something goes wrong in one place, whenever one of these kind of centralized polities explodes, all it does is see the beginnings of new spaces of cultural ferment as a result. You know, scholars are sent out like spores and soon create new colonies of, of, of intellectual production and artistic production in the new spaces where claimants to power uh, put down their roots. Perhaps no single person's life encapsulates the dynamics of the Islamic world during the 13th century better than that of the figure Jalaluddin Muhammad Rumi, who settled in the Rum Seljuk capital of Konya and became one of the most famous authors ever to live in what is now Turkey. As it turns out, his presence there was largely an accident of history. Rumi's story does not begin in Rum. Rum was the name given to the territory which we now know as Asia Minor. The reason this was known as Rum was because uh, the territory was the territory of Byzantine Empire, in other words, the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, the Rum Seljuks had only established themselves in 1075. So Rumi would eventually end up being associated with this territory, but his story begins on the eastern parts of the Seljuk Empire in a place known as Bagh, which is in uh, present-day Afghanistan. Rumi is born in Bagh to a family of scholars and preachers. His father is a scholar who teaches at a medrese, but the family decides to uproot in the beginning of the 13th century because uh, this is a period in which the Seljuks are challenged by new Turco-Persian dynasties. And in the one century that follows Nizam al-Mulk's death from 1092 to uh, the end of the 1200s, Bech, where Rumi was born, changed hands three times. One of the main reasons the Rumi family decides to leave the eastern ends of the Seljuk Empire is the instability caused by the fall or the decline of the Seljuk rule. Rumi's father uh, is also not impressed with the post he is given. He considers he deserves more. He c- calls himself the king of scholars, Sultanul Ulema. And he is in search of a better position, so he uproots his family, as scholars do, and he starts moving in search of a better medrese and a better career. Rumi's father moved his family from place to place in Persia and Syria, stopping in Mecca along the way. But it was in the newly conquered lands of Anatolia where he could find real opportunities to elevate his scholarly profile. A Rumi's father becomes so well known in Larande that he is eventually invited by uh, the Seljuk ruler to the court in Konya and endowed a medrese in the capital of the Rum Seljuks. This is where uh, Rumi's story as a Rumi begins. He is trained in that same medrese, and he is trained to become a scholar himself. Before taking his father's post, he travels to Aleppo and Damascus to complete his higher education, and he comes back and he starts teaching at the medrese in Konya. He was a recognized expert in law, and his fatwas, or his legal opinions, were sought 
by the residents of Konya, by rulers and common people alike. He is also known to be extremely popular uh, as a preacher in his popular sermons. He writes his poetry in Persian, he writes his letters in Persian, uh, but in order to be able to communicate with the people of Rome, he also often uses Turkish or Greek words, which shows us his propensity to make sure to attract as many people as possible to his lodge. Rumi would rise to prominence due to his position in the Seljuk capital, but it was his involvement in history's most celebrated Sufi bromance that would define his poetic legacy. The big change in Rumi's life, which he himself in his poetry describes as a transformative encounter, is his encounter with Shamsi Tabrizi, another scholar and Sufi, who, like Rumi's family, escapes from the eastern end of, uh, of the Iranian world to the Seljuk Sovru. Shamsi Tabrizi is a scholar proper. Uh, Rumi describes him as peerless in knowledge of alchemy, astronomy, astrology, logic, theology, and of course, uh, law. Uh, but the main influence in Rumi's life brought about by Shams was his particular Sufi dispensation, which we today call love mysticism. So according to his biographers, before the arrival of Shams, uh, Rumi was a balanced scholar and Sufi who took his public preaching very seriously. But Shams had a different disposition as a Sufi, uh, which is known as the Melamis, that can be translated as world rejection Sufism. World rejection Sufism um, means that the Sufi does not want any honors, um, status, anything associated with social appreciation, because these are mere obstacles before one's knowing God. The world rejecting Sufis actively seek to be blamed, which is where the word Melami comes from, or to be shamed by the society, so that they have no status within the society, which means that their satisfaction, personal satisfaction, only lies with knowing God. It is this rather radical interpretation of the Sufi prioritization of inner life over social life. Uh, With the arrival of Shams, Rumi seems more and more interested in this particular brand of world rejection Sufism. He continues his teaching post, uh, but he often disappears into long periods of seclusion with Shams. He takes preaching less seriously according to uh, sources of the period. Uh, and he becomes more withdrawn and inner or inward oriented. Uh, this is something we see a lot in his poetry. He describes how he was completely transformed with the coming of Shams into his world and that he was completely oriented to the love of God. This was a problem for Rumi's family and Rumi's disciples and circle who wanted Rumi to continue his public role. And this is usually considered to be a reaction to the love mysticism and the world rejection that Shams brought into Rumi's world. Uh, But we should also keep in mind 
that one of the goals of Rumi was to integrate Shams into his household uh, by marrying him to the family, which fails because Shams's wife dies soon after. Uh, but these efforts of integrating Shams into the household uh, were not favored by uh, Rumi's sons, who didn't want competition going forward uh, as successors of Rumi. So, so this is another reminder of how Sufi networks uh, worked as households and dynasties with uh, extensions through teaching networks and with families in, in, in their heart. Poetry is among the classics of the Persian world that were written in this period, by which I mean the period from the um, 11th to the 13th century. These Persian classics informed the practice of literature, Sufism, ethics in Islamic courts for centuries to come. Rumi's Sufi thought and popularity as a poet have transcended time and place. In the United States today, you can find translations and interpretations of Rumi so far removed from the Islamic context and so distorted that it would be impossible to tell that Rumi was a Muslim scholar at all. Even till today, the name Rumi strikes, you know, is gives a sense of what that means, right? How important this idea of mysticism is even in the context of the United States. Rumi is someone that everyone likes to read or, you know, he was like the best, his book of poetry is one of the best sellers and it's always been, it has been. The fact that Rumi might be considered America's best-selling poet is simple enough to critique and analyze. But there's a more complicated debate about how to characterize or place Persian authors like Rumi, who in the mode of El-Ghazali, El-Biruni, Ibn Sina, and countless others, made their name by moving throughout the Turco-Persian world. One of the misconceptions or one of the ideas that Europeans have put forth is that Persian is the language of a people from a land called Persia. But if you look at the historical sources that are non-European, how tied is the language of Persian to the land of Iran? So this is the reason we want to call Rumi not as Persian, but as a Persianate author who was not ethnically Persian most likely or who did not live uh, in historical Iran, uh, but who was part of this world of Turco-Persian cultural unity which was held together by the courts and the lodges which were centers of Persian production. Later, after the 13th century, when vernacular started to be used in the Islamic world, for instance, when Turkish was used as a literary language, it was again these Persian classics written in this period that served as the models of these newly burgeoning literary cultures. We'll conclude this podcast with one last piece of the Persian literary tradition. The Shahnameh. The Shahnameh, or Book of Kings, is a long epic poem in the Persian language, written by Ferdowsi, who was born in Khorasan. 
Composed at the turn of the 11th century, the Shahnameh was a mixture of Persian myth and pre-Islamic history from the Sasanian world. In this sense, it was very rooted in the Persian language and the territory of Iran. Yet it was commissioned by the Ghaznavids, a Turkic dynasty. So it, it perhaps is a little bit ironic then that you know the great Persian national epic, if, if we were, like to use words like national, um, the Shahnameh is commissioned by a Turkish slave soldier, <laughs> um, or at least by the descendant of the descendant of one, right? That it is a product of this this environment, um, and that ultimately the people who are going to sponsor with money and with uh, legitimacy, this culture are, are, are people for whom that, that language is not their first language either. This was a very important um, piece of literature that over time had been replicated and re-rendered in a lot of different contexts, using a lot of different artistic modes, using even, even the story themselves had been changed depending on the actual person composing the story, right? You could think of it as the form stays the same, but the stylistic choices are where you see the creativity. The power of narrative is something we really need to think about very seriously here. And the Shahnameh gives this, um, I, this narrative voice, right? It gives the power of narrative to describe the times. I work on the 18th century and still you see references back to the Shahnameh. So you will have people who are called Rustam al-Hind, you know, the Rustam of Hind in 18th century sources, because this was popular culture. Everyone knew the Shahnameh. So what I'm listening for is what the narrative is telling me for this present moment. And it was a work that was imitated not only uh, by Turkish and Indian courts, but imitated to some extent in Armenian and Georgian languages, which is to show that uh, the impact of Persian was no way limited to Persian societies or what we consider geographically the equivalent of today's Iran. The Persian classics written in this period inspired productions of courtly literature and ethical literature in courts of the Islamic world throughout from Cairo all the way to Lahore. This won't be the last time we visit the Persianate world. In fact, in later installments of this series, we'll see the rise of new Persianate dynasties in the wake of the Mongol invasions and even explore some of the illustrated copies of the Shahnameh and other riffs on the genre of the Book of Kings produced during the early modern period. But first we've got more territory to cover. In the next episode, we'll look at another zone of cultural dynamism at the frontiers of the Islamic world in North Africa and modern-day Spain. Then we'll return to a dynasty that has already popped up a few times in our discussions, the Fatimids based in Cairo, and their broader impact on the Islamic world both as purveyors of a new Ismaili version of Islam in the Shia tradition and as rulers at the center of a trade network that linked the Mediterranean to the Indian Ocean. I'm Chris Grayton. Thanks for listening, and join us next time in the special Ottoman History podcast series on The Making of the Islamic World.